Well, good morning once again. And it's so good to be with you in the Lord's house. And uh, I pray everyone has had a great Christmas morning. It has been my prayer that everybody at Cedar Street Baptist Church is on the nice list, not the naughty list this year. And uh, we're just, it's just great to be in the Lord's house. I, um, every Christmas I think back to some of the best Christmas memories that I've ever had. I think we all have those special memories that are kind of embroidered in our hearts and in our minds. And I can't help but think when I think about Christmas about the best gift that I ever received. Uh, I was three years old, so this would have been December 25th, 1983. And so for you golden agers, I know you still think I'm a spring chicken and some of the teenagers think I'm older than dirt. All right, but in, in uh, December 25th, 1983, I walked down the stairs Christmas morning and I saw under the tree a Dukes of Hazard pedal car. Should have been the first sign that God was going to make me a Georgia boy. But I saw this Dukes of Hazard pedal car and it was beautiful in every way. I mean, it was vitamin C orange, had the General Lee sticker on the, on the top, it had the the, the trunk, and it had the, the hood that would pop up at any time. It had the horn that made that traditional Dukes of Hazard sound. And I knew that my parents had stayed up all hours of the night putting it together for me. And I had this tradition in my neighborhood. Uh, I actually would go into my mom's kitchen. I would make a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, put it in a brown bag. Then I'd go up to my mother, kiss her on the cheek, and tell her I was going to work. And I'd, I'd put the bag in the trunk of the car, pedal two houses down, pull in the driveway, eat the sandwich, pedal back, pull in my driveway and say, honey, I'm home. <laughs> I, did, I did that until I could no longer fit in that car anymore. It was such a great gift. It was, it, uh, nothing will ever top uh, the, the feeling I had as a child uh, walking down Christmas morning and, and seeing that gift. But as you can imagine... As a believer in Jesus Christ, I've come to understand gifts that are even greater. And today, as we enter into a a time of opening God's Word on a Christmas morning where we celebrate the birth of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, I want to talk about the special gifts that God bestowed upon us when Jesus came into this world and God became a man. This morning, I want to move beyond the manger scene. We've taken a lot of time to celebrate that. We had an awesome praise kids ceremony. We had a candlelight service. Uh, We talked about the chronological story of the birth of Jesus Christ. And and this morning, I kind of want to back away from that and get a big picture view of um, the internal implications of the earthly arrival of Jesus Christ so we can better understand and rejoice in the gifts that we've been offered when God sent forth his Son. So if you have a Bible, please turn with me to the book of Galatians. Okay, the book of Galatians will be in chapter 4, verses 4 through 7. And if you would stand at this time out of the reverence of the reading of God's holy, inerrant, infallible word, we are in Galatians chapter 4, and we are going to be reading verses 4 through 7 together. Hear the word of the Lord starting in verse 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Let us pray together. Gracious Heavenly Father, we love you. And we thank you and praise you for this day that you have made. Father, we thank you for the birth of your son. 
We thank you that you loved us too much to let us remain slaves to sin, that you made us heirs to your kingdom through the life, death, and resurrection of your Son. And we remember this today. We proclaim this today. We rejoice in this today. Father, I pray for anyone who has entered into the sanctuary here this morning. If they do not know your Son as Lord and Savior, Father, I pray in the time of the preaching of your word that you would anoint the words, that the honor and glory would be yours, and that you would open up hearts and minds to receive it and respond to it in repentance and faith. We love you, we thank you, and praise you. We offer these words in Christ's name, and God's people said, amen. I know Galatians chapter 4 is not a a typical passage for a Christmas morning. Of course, during our candlelight service, we walk through just about every passage of Scripture that you can find that talks about the chronology of the birth of Christ. But in that one sentence, the title of our message, when God sent forth his son, I want to pick that passage apart and think about all the implications of what happened when God sent forth his son, that we would know these amazing gifts that God has left under the tree for us. And the first of those three that I'd like to share with you here this morning is this. When God sent forth his son, he offered us a new future. Let us look back at the text here, verses 4 through 5. It says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. There is so much richness in this passage, in these two verses. Let's just walk word by word through it. Let's start with the idea of fullness of time. You know, one thing I've come to understand in my short walk with the Lord is I do not see time as God sees time. I'm incapable of seeing time as God sees time because God created time and created space and he's not confined by either one. God stands outside of time and space and he can see the beginning from the end. And I can't. And because I can't, I become impatient. I become frustrated. I begin to challenge God. Begin to become frustrated. When's this going to finally happen, Lord? The Psalms, I love the Psalms because of their honesty. You see King David and others crying out, How long, O Lord, how long? In our humanity, God works at such a pace that we can't see what he's doing. I've heard, I've heard this mentioned many times that we live in a microwave world, but we serve a crockpot God. Most of you know crockpots this week. I've seen a lot of them. And that's how God operates. He's not in a hurry. He's not going to work according to our timeline. He's going to work according to his. And everything God does is in perfect timing. God is the slowest person who is always on time. So when the Bible says when the fullness of time had come that God would send forth his son, it was the perfect time because God decided it was the perfect time. And let that be a reminder to us as well of the second coming of Jesus Christ. No one knows the hour or the day, not even the Son or the Spirit, but only the Father. And that will come when the Father decides it will come. And no one that you've watched on TV that has cracked ten codes in the Old Testament has figured out exactly when Christ is coming. If you hear someone say, I know, run as fast and as far away as you can, because only God knows. God's timing is perfect in every way. Let's continue in the passage here. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. That one sentence has so much meaning. 
One thing it does is helps us to understand that the Trinity, the triune God, this is a mystery of our faith. I love it in Awana when a young believer comes up and you try to explain, we worship one God made up of three individual persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Well, that doesn't that make three gods? No, that makes one. Well, does that mean that they're all just part? Well, they're all unique persons. God the Father is God. God the Son is God. God the Spirit is God. And they have unique roles and responsibilities, but together they make one God. And here's one way that has been helpful for me over the years to, rem- to remind myself of the roles within the Trinity. Think of the letter A. L- listen to the, to the letter A in, uh, in these three things. It's the Father who assigns. It's the Son who accomplishes. And it's the Spirit who applies. That's a great way to remember kind of how the Trinity works together as one God. And it's always the Father who assigns. It doesn't mean the Father's any more important than the Son. It means the Son willfully submits to the plan of the Father. Isn't that what Jesus said in his earthly life? I only do what the Father tells me to do. That's, that's perfect obedience. And it doesn't make Jesus any less important than the Father. It makes him a wonderful, subservient Son to the Father's plan. And that's exactly what happens here. When God sent forth his Son, it's the Father who sent him. It's the Son who willingly agreed to be sent. And the Spirit who eventually opens our eyes and applies the truth to our hearts when we are born again. It is the Father who sent forth his Son. But not only that, he was born of woman, born under the law. Think about this. There was a moment in time and space where God humbled himself in such a way that he became a single human cell in the womb of Mary. With human minds, I don't think we can, we can understand the depth and the beauty of that. God became a human being. We come into this church every week and we proclaim that. And sometimes I think we take the beauty and the power of that and we kind of put it to sleep a little bit. But stop and think for one second. God became a human being and walked like us and talked like us and was tired and was hungry and was frustrated and was joyful. All the emotions that we experience, God experienced through Jesus Christ, yet without sin. Yet without sin. Sin. He was born of a woman. He was born under the law. And this separates us from every other so-called religion in the world. We live in a a day and time in America where it is politically incorrect to look at someone whom you love and care for and say, you know, the scripture does not make provision for other religions to be true. It's either right or it's wrong. Jesus either is the son of God or he's not. And if he is, there's no other religion that teaches what Christianity teaches. In fact, I've heard it said this way, there are many men who wanted to become a God, but there's only one God who wanted to become a man. And that separates Christianity from every other faith. It does not mean we don't love people of other faith, and it does not mean people of other faith are not capable of doing good moral deeds, but what it does mean is if people reject Jesus Christ for another faith or another religion, you are saying that God's Son is not enough. You're saying that God's son is not enough. And what Jesus Christ did for us, there's no other faith that can offer that. He was born of a woman. He was born under the law. Why was he born as a human being under the law? So that he, next part of the passage, may redeem those who are under the law. 
if, you, if, you're, if you're visiting with us today and you're new to the faith and, you, and it's been hard to understand, you maybe heard that Jesus died for our sins, but what exactly does that mean? This is a great time as we celebrate the birth of Jesus to talk about the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. So why did God have to become a human being? Here's why. Because God is holy and loving. All right, He loves us so much that he created us, but he's also holy, which means when we die, he's going to judge us according to his holy standards, his law. The law showed us that we were not holy, that we could not live according to his standards. So without a Savior, what will happen is when we die, we stand in the courtroom of God and we're held accountable for our sins. And if we had not lived a perfect life, which no one apart from Christ ever has, we're declared guilty and we're declared and given a sentence where we are banished away from the presence of God forever. That's the truth and the reality of sin. But why did God have to become a man? When God became a man, Jesus Christ took on flesh and he lived the perfect life that we should have lived. All right? He did everything that we should have done. He said everything that we should say. He thought everything that we should think. He lived a perfect life, historians believe, for about 33 years, and he never committed a sin. He earned our righteousness. But that's not enough. Then he had to take the cross for us. And when he took the cross, he died the death that we deserved. The punishment that we deserved for our sins, God put that on his shoulders as he hung on the cross hour after hour, crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God had to pour out his wrath on his son because we could not take the weight of that wrath. That's what God did for us through Jesus Christ. God took the punishment that we deserved and he placed it into the shed blood of Jesus Christ so the the penalty of our sins has been washed away. But the third and final part of that is that Jesus Christ rose from the dead, making a way from death to life. And when he walked out of that tomb, he showed himself to be a sacrifice accepted by the Father. When he walked out of the tomb, God the Father is saying, you were the perfect sacrifice that I now accept for the sins of those who will place their faith in you. That's why we need a Savior. And that's why Jesus Christ came. God had to be a man. He had to be tempted in every way that we're tempted, yet without sin. He had to earn the righteousness we could not earn and take on the punishment that we deserved and rise from the dead, making a way from death to life for all that would, who would place their faith in him. That's why he had to be born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. So again, he does two things when he does that. He atones for our sins. Our sins, past, present, future, have all been atoned for on the cross if we're born-again believers in Jesus Christ. But he also gives us the the righteousness that he earned. Again, I use this example all the time because it seems like in 2016, people understand financial terms. All right? Let's say you walk into a bank and you want a loan. All right? And the loan officer also happens to be the president of the bank, That's God the Father. And he loves you, and he wants to give this loan to you. But he's also a good banker, and he will not give it to you unless you have a perfect credit score. All right? But then comes the the son of the banker, the only one who's earned that perfect credit score. And the son says to the father, what if I co-sign on that loan? And the father says to the son, if you do, you'll take all the liability of what they've done wrong, and they'll get all credit for what you've done right. And the son would say, well, that's why I earned it to begin with. 
Jesus Christ is our divine co-signer. And when you die, if you're a Christian, you will stand before God and you will get credit for what Jesus Christ did for you as your co-signer. That's the beauty of our faith, that when God sent forth his son, he would do for us what we could not do for ourselves. So number one, when God sent forth his son, he offered us a new future. But number two, when God sent forth his son, he offered us a new family. Look at verse six. It says, and because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. At the end of the previous passage, we talked about adoption. What does adoption mean? Adoption means that we were brought into a new family. What a beautiful gift adoption is. I know we have many members of the congregation here who have gone through adoption. Adoption is a long process, a lot of paperwork, a lot of waiting, a lot of prayer. I think right now of some, clo- some of my closest friends in North Carolina from the church that we came from, several families in particular, who want to adopt. And right now they're going through that 10-stage process where they've had to save up fifteen dollars to $20,000. They've had to have a home inspection. They've had to have a full home study. They've had to be interviewed and put together an album of pictures and stories to present for prospective families to look at them. Adoption's a long process. It can often be a painful and sacrificial process, but there's no parent here on earth who's had to go through more to make adoption take place than the father sending the son and what the son did for us to be adopted into the family of God. Amen? That's a beautiful and wonderful adoption that we need to celebrate and that we probably can't fully understand. But look at, the, look at the end of this passage. God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Let me tell you something that I've learned now in almost six weeks of being a parent. Yeah, yeah. Children cry. And no one understands the cry of the child more than the mother. Ashley, Ashley interprets for me every day. There's the cry of, I'm hungry. There's the cry of, I'm tired. There's the cry of, I wish you didn't have a beard, Daddy. <laughs> there are about seven or eight different cries. She's got them down pat. I'm getting better. But the parent understands the sound of the cry. Listen to this passage. God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba. Father. Do you know what that means? Before Jesus Christ, you have no ability to cry out to God as a loving Father because you only know Him as your Creator. It is not until you become a believer in Jesus Christ and you are born again and you receive the Holy Spirit that you have the ability to see God as a loving Father and that you can cry out to Him. That word Abba is just a sense of intimacy. It's the way in which you would call out to your earthly father. And that Spirit inside of you, the Holy Spirit of God, cries out, Abba, Father. You can't know that until you've been adopted into the family of God. And you can't be adopted until you've been born again. And you've put your faith and your trust in Jesus Christ. But once you have, and you've cried out those words, Abba, Father, you have a new family. You have a new family. And what a blessing that family is. 
Not only, as we'll talk about in a minute, do we have access through the inheritance of all the blessings of God. Can I tell you one of my favorite things about being a part of the family of God? And I'm being totally truthful when I say this. I'm not trying to be metaphorical or just have a feel-good statement. When I come into this sanctuary and I hug all my, my deacons and, and, and uh, their wives and everyone who walks through those doors and I say, good morning, brother, good morning, sister, I'm reminding myself, you are literally my brother. You are literally my sister. You are literally part of my family, and I'm a part of yours. The blood of Jesus Christ has made us family. And I had long to be a part of this family. There's no other thing that I'd rather do. There's no other place I'd rather be than be with the family of God. It's, it, it does not mean that we don't go out and do the work of missions and evangelism and we try to welcome and bring other people into the family. Okay, We shouldn't spend all our time with just the family. We've got to go out and do the Lord's work. But when we're with family, there's just no other peace in my heart than to know I'm among the family of God. I'm so grateful for the brothers and the sisters and the adopted aunts and uncles and fathers and mothers and grandfathers and grandmothers that I have at Cedar Street Baptist Church and every church that I've been a part of. This morning I got a text message from a man who uh, is my adopted North Carolina father from the church that we were at at seminary. It's so amazing to be a part of the family of God and that's another gift that God has given us through the birth, the life, the death, the resurrection, the ascension, and eventually the second coming of his son. That's the gift that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ, that God sent forth his son offering us a new family. But that's not the only thing that God has done. He's given us a new future. He's given us a new family. But number three, when God sent forth his son, he offered us a new fortune. When God sent forth his son, he offered us a new fortune. Listen to verse seven. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son than an heir through God. So why does it say that we're a slave? Sin brings us into slavery. It brings us into bondage. For those that don't know Jesus Christ, here's what we need to understand about sin. If you're, if you're not living for God, you're living for the pleasure and the desires of your life, and you're a sin to them. Because the desires and the pleasures of our lives can never be fulfilled the way we want them to be, and we have to chase after them. All right, Amazon.com's made a lot of money on the sins of human beings this Christmas season, and I got to be honest with you, I'm still I'm a redeemed sinner, but I'm still a sinner, and I struggle with it as much as anybody else. That attention that we take off of the love that the Father has for us, and we cast it onto other things that we think are going to fulfill us the way only God can. But here's the difference: even though I'm still a sinner. Even though I spend way too much time on Amazon.com, I'm not a slave in bondage to that sin. I've been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ through his Holy Spirit. I have the ability to repent and be restored. Somebody who has not been born again does not have the ability in their own flesh to turn away from their sins. Doesn't mean they don't have the ability to do good moral things, but what it does mean is they're in bondage, they're in slavery to their own desires. You're either going to live for yourself or you're going to live for God. And if you're not living for God, you will always live for yourself. It's a one-to-one ratio. And if you live for yourself, you'll never experience the peace of God, which Philippians says transcends all understanding. That's, that's bondage. That's slavery. But we're not slaves if we're born again. We're a son. And if son, we're also an heir. So what does it mean to be an heir? 
Well, in simple terms, to be an heir means to be appointed to receive an inheritance from the Father. To receive an inheritance from the Father. So what inheritance are we going to receive? Let me, let me, as we get ready to kind of bring this thing full circle, let me say a few things about what being an heir means and what it doesn't mean. Okay? I have uh, friends of mine in years past who come from the Mormon faith, and we would disagree with our Mormon friends that say that being an heir means that you yourself one day will become a God. That is not what Scripture teaches. We will always be God's creation and God's beloved and even God's children through adoption, but we're never going to be God ourselves, nor should we want to be God ourselves. Adam and Eve had that desire. They wanted the knowledge of God. They sinned against him by eating from the, the tree that they were told not to eat from, from the knowledge of good and evil, and we've been, in, we've been a mess ever since. So we're never going to be God. And so we need to understand, being an heir does not mean that we're all, we're all of a sudden going to be sitting on the, at the right hand of God on the throne and, and we are going to have worlds surrounding us, worshiping us. That will never happen. That does not mean being an heir. But here's what it does mean. Being an heir means that we have treasures stored up for us in heaven that are so great we can't possibly put it into human words. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9 says this, But as it is written... What no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. Do you know what that means? If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, dream big, because God's treasures will always be bigger. When you come into your inheritance in that, on that heavenly throne, it will be beyond what you could ever possibly imagine. God's saying, I'm giving you permission to dream big. I'm giving you permission to rejoice in a gift so great, human beings can't imagine it on this side of heaven. That's a gift that I can't wait to open on Christmas morning. Amen? Also, being an heir means the world will not accept us as God does. 1 John chapter 3, verse 1 says this. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we shall be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. So there's the blessing, but there's also the challenge of being an heir. All right, when you're an heir to the throne of God, the world's not going to understand. When you're living for God, it's not going to make sense to the world. When you're repenting of sin that other people are rejoicing in, that's not going to make sense to the world. But don't think about the present. Cast your mind on the things to come. Cast your mind on the heavenly things that God has prepared for you. And when you think about that, there'll be joy in the present world. In fact, the great C.S. Lewis said, those who aim for this world get nothing. But those who aim for heaven not only get that world, but they get this world thrown in for free. While we're thinking about the world to come, it propels us to have as much joy as we could possibly have in this world. I remember reading a book, um, The Treasure Principle by Randy Alcorn. I've, I've shared with my wife and others, this is one of my favorite books. And here's what he said it's like. Imagine that your ultimate destination is Miami. And you're flying from Atlanta to Miami, but you have a connection somewhere, let's just say Chicago. All right? Now, when you land in Chicago, you're filled with joy. Not because you've gotten to your destination, but because you're moving so close to the destination, you can't think about anything else but that destination, and it fills you with such joy that it's just a part of everything that you do before you finally get there. Well, we're on that journey right now. We're not, there, we're not at our destination just yet, but we're moving along towards that destination. And the joy of our lives should not be everything that we can have now. 
All right, when your ultimate home is Miami, you're not trying to fill your heart with as much as you can in Chicago. You're just thinking about getting to Miami, and getting there makes you joyful in Chicago. So while we're in Metter, Georgia, and we're traveling on that journey to wherever God has us to be, let the joy of our hearts be the anticipation of what's to come. That, that's what it means to be an heir. But finally, we need to be honest about another struggle that comes with being an heir. If we are heirs with Christ, we will suffer with Christ before we are glorified with Christ. Romans eight seventeen says this. And if we are children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we also may be glorified with him. That's a passage I never, ever, ever hear on Christian television, ever. Best-selling Christian authors, they leave those passages out, provided we suffer, because people are not sitting in their living rooms, turning on television after the end of a long work day, wanting to hear that we're, we're, we're appointed to suffer before we get to be with Christ forever in his kingdom. But we can still find joy in the truth of that passage, that when you're in a season of suffering, you're in a season of depression, you're in a season of persecution, you're in a season of struggle, don't think it's strange Don't think, I'm a Christian. Things should all be perfect. No, the Bible says we are heirs with Christ provided we suffer with Him until we will be glorified with Him. I embrace that. I look at a time of suffering and say, there's meaning and purpose in this. God's not done with me. God is using this for His glory and for my good. And there will be a day where we stand at the foot of the throne praising God and everything will have been worth it. Everything will finally make sense. Jesus Christ came at the direction of the Father to redeem us from our sins. And the book of Hebrews says, For it was the joy that was set before him that he endured the cross. So as we consider the joy of the Christmas season and we celebrate the birth of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, Let us consider the joy of everything that Christ did for us through his life and death and resurrection. And let that be the focal point of not only the Christmas season, but the entire year as we follow Christ. So that leads us to our conclusion. When God sent forth his son, he offered us more gifts than we could ever fit under a tree. Have you unwrapped these gifts through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ? When God sent forth his son, he offered us more gifts than we could ever fit under a tree. Have you unwrapped these gifts through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ? When God sent forth his son, he offered you a new future. He offered you a new family. He offered you a new fortune. Everything has been earned and is being offered to you. Our response, much like your children this morning who bolted down to the tree, is simply to unwrap the gift. And we unwrap that gift through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. We admit that we are a sinner in need of salvation. We confess that to God, asking that Jesus Christ be our Lord and our Savior. And we ask God's help by His Spirit to live for Jesus Christ until we either die and get to be with Him or until He comes back to get us, whichever one comes first. This Christmas morning, let us not just celebrate the birth of our Savior. Let us celebrate all the gifts that came when God sent forth his Son. Let us pray together. Gracious Heavenly Father,
we love you. And Father, we thank you and praise you for this day. Father, we thank you for sending forth your Son. Lord Jesus, we thank you for being obedient to the Father. Holy Spirit, we thank you for taking all that the Father and the Son have done and applying it to our hearts and minds in a way that we could never see by ourselves. We thank you, Lord God, for all that you've done for us. What a gift. And we celebrate the birth of Christ in this season, moving on to Easter where we celebrate his death and resurrection. But throughout this entire year, let us contemplate these gifts, the gifts of a new future, the gifts of a new family, the gifts of a new fortune. Let them fill our hearts with joy. Let us cling close to one another in this time and close to you, God. Be with us now, we pray. In Jesus' name, and God's people said, amen.